This episode is brought to you by Sombra, an award-winning artisanal mezcal handcrafted in Santiago, Matatlan, Oaxaca, Mexico. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your solo co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, and my guest is somebody I've uh, known for a while, admired for a long time, and I'm really excited to, to talk to you today. Prithi Mystery is a chef, activist, and writer, author, uh, and all-around fascinating food person. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ethan. So you've done all kinds of things, and you've had, you've had some very cool new projects come out recently. Uh, why don't we start there? Tell us a little bit, little bit about what you've been working on these days. Yeah. Um, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my wife and I decided to be those vacation home people and move into our vacation home, except it's not as extravagant as that sounds. Um, <laughs> It's just a tiny cabin. So anyway, um, we moved out of Oakland to uh, Sonoma County. So I started working with a lot of different uh, agricultural projects up here. I've been volunteering on small farms. I joined the board of an organization called Farm to Pantry that helps the food insecure up here. And I also started a podcast, which is something really fun that you can do from a cabin in the Redwoods. It's called wow. Loading. Yeah, it's called Loading Doc Talks. And uh, I am interviewing lots of fun food folks we talk about their lives, social justice, and you know, a little fun shit talking too. Nice. Uh, how did the where did the idea for the podcast come from? How did that get started? You know, I've been talking about it for a while. Uh, there's a chef friend of mine who I even talked to a couple years ago about doing one together. Um, this was like back in 2018, 2019. I mean, at the end of the day, I talk a lot. I have a lot of opinions and it seems like a lot of people want to hear my perspective. Um, essentially, you know, one of the jokes that I've had is that like, you know, I'm very active on Twitter and, um, one of my friends, actually my co-author of my cookbook, Sarah Henry, who's a fabulous Australian lady, um, and friend, uh, there was some tweet thread I was on that got a lot of attention and she was, you know, with her Australian accent, she was like, you got to figure out how to monetize this shit. <laughs> and so for me, I just, you know, honestly, I'm like, yeah, I spent a lot of time giving my opinion about things. And to the point where some people, when I will, you know, write about something on Twitter, they're like, oh, great. I was, I was waiting to hear what your thoughts were about this, um, which is very flattering. Uh, so to me, it's sort of like taking that and figuring out how to create something beyond just like ranting um, on the bird app uh, and and do something more constructive. And also, I think the other part of it is I, I tend to get, whether it's social media or other things, this reputation for sort of being this angry lesbian and the angry brown lesbian trope. And the fact of the matter is I'm actually, Ethan, I think you can attest to this, a pretty nice person. And <laughs> I have a lot of friends and yes, I really absolutely. would like to... I want to be able to focus on the positive stuff because, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's happening in our industry and, and in our world that, yeah, I have a lot of criticism about and critique of, but I think there's also so much, so many wonderful people doing so many wonderful things. And so it's an, it's an opportunity to kind of uh, frame the conversation from my perspective where we can talk about tough issues, but we can also just celebrate, you know, just the, I mean, I hate this word because it's such a buzzword, but the diversity of amazing humans in our industry and all of the inspiring things they're doing. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to come back around to that and talk more about uh, what you were just saying, how, how you sort of see your voice in this bigger conversation that's taking place around food. Uh, but I also, before we get uh, too far off topic, I want to make sure we talk about uh -huh. your uh, your co-starring role with Michelle Obama on, uh, <laughs> on the show, uh, Waffles and Mochi. Tell 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 me about that. What was it like to to make that? Uh, what was it like on the set? Uh, and and what was kind of your bigger goal in in participating in it? Um, well, I mean, first of all, it was such an honor, and just to get it out of the way, no, I have not met Michelle Obama in person oh, no. um, All right. as of yet. Sorry to disappoint everyone, but you know, we filmed it in like January or February of 2020. And then we all know what happened in March. So, um, you know, it's, it, and it was just this sort of waiting game of when's it going to come out? Um, because it got pushed with all, you know, the, everything that was happening in our world. Um, it, I mean, it was amazing. It was, um, I was approached by producers, like in the fall of 2019. Um, and we shot it in the East Oakland backyard of a friend of mine who's a farmer. He, he kind of is in there for a second. And that's his son, Bija, who's uh, the little kid who's also with me in Waffles and Mochi. And um, yeah, he's a farmer. So he, he works on large projects, but he also has in his East Oakland home um, with his wife and kids, a pretty significant garden. Um, I'd say small farm. So uh, we we had I had talked with the producers about which topic area they were sort of you know shooting all the different things at me. There's going to be tomatoes, potatoes, salt. Like what speaks to you? And you know it was pretty easy for us to sort of pinpoint herbs and spices as the one that made the most sense for me. Um, and you know I mean I I'm I think it, what was so cool is like of all of the things that kids complain about, like. It's always like it's too spicy. There's green stuff on it. So I felt like being able to like open kids' minds to things like herbs and spices, which are like the number one thing they get freaked out about or, you know, have or just think they don't like, um, was was a great opportunity. And, you know, I've had parents send me like I get the most amazing DMs <laughs> from parents. Um, I get like pictures of their kids, videos of their kids, like stories about how their kids would never eat this. And now they're like wanted to learn how to make pesto and eat, wow. you know, basil and things like that, or go to the spice store. Um, like, yeah. So, I mean, that part is amazing. And then the puppets, it was just so fun. Were the puppets, uh, I mean, were they, were they real? Like, were you interacting with the puppets on screen or did that get kind of cobbled together? Afterwards? Oh, no, no. Yeah, they were there. It was, uh, you know, there's uh, puppeteers that um, are basically like wearing black and like laying on the ground next to me. <laughs> <laughs> like, here's I'm, my I'm, knee and here's like the puppet's head, <laughs> the, the puppeteer, while Waffles is, you know, up front in front of me. Um, so yeah, they're just like under the, you know, right under there <laughs> with microphones. So I mean, it was cool. Like I saw like, you know, they go to so many, I mean, it was a really quality production, obviously. Like, you know, even when they're eating, like the puppeteers have microphones like strapped to their, you know, forehead in different spots so that you get that full sound of munching, crunching on the panipuri or whatever. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it, and it was super fun, and it was just like a fun afternoon hanging out yeah. with yeah. waffles yeah. and mochi. And I didn't even, you know, and then I've since I've fallen in love with imitating mochi. Like I just it, sometimes I drive my wife crazy. I'm just like me 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 me. 
<laughs> and I just keep doing that all day long. I was even joking with one of the writers that they were like, well, maybe you could be uh, Moshi's understudy, <laughs> voice understudy, <laughs> if the person who does their voice gets hoarse. <laughs> have, have a recurring role as uh, yeah. as the understudy. The voice yeah, understudy. Do you, I do. Uh, do you Mochi's recognize voice. on the street? Um, you know, I live in the country now, so I'm not really out on the street as much yeah, all right, <laughs> I'm in the woods, but I mean, I definitely like, there's been a couple, yeah, for sure. I mean, but it, you know, that's not really like a new thing for me. Um, so, yep. you know, I mean, I've, you know, ever since Top Chef, which was like 12 years ago, I've had people stopping me, like, I mean, in random places like L London and India and like you know, because they saw Top Chef or they saw me on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown or, you know, some magazine or something. So I'm pretty used to it. But yeah. I am I am kind of excited to get noticed more by the four to seven set. That that part <laughs> in particular a, feels a great fan base. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm coming up with the four to seven year olds. <laughs> um, what what do people what do people ask when they stop you on the street for for this or for other other TV that you've done? What what are they what do you think they're looking for? I mean, I think a lot of times people like, I mean, some people are just like exclaim stuff. To, I mean, some of it's just like they literally have just been to my restaurant and they're just like, oh my God, that lemonade or that Vodapav or whatever. Um, or, you know, I mean, obviously with Waffles and Mochi and with Parts Unknown, people want to know if I've met Michelle Obama or how was Tony? What was he like? Um, so those kinds of things generally is what people want to know. They want to know how the other people, the more famous people are. <laughs> 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 oh well, that's pretty funny. Um, you also, I mean, came from came from a fine dining background. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that transition that you've made from from working in restaurants to working in food more broadly and and food media more recently? Yeah, um, I mean, the fine dining thing was really just at the beginning of my career, and that was just because I was, you know, it's sort of like you're told this is what you're supposed to do. Um, it's sort of like, I liken it to sort of like going to law school and everyone's like, you should work for a big firm and become partner. Like that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but Hey, there's a lot of different ways to be a lawyer and a chef. Um, luckily I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, <laughs> it could, it could be worse. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, so, I mean, I was pretty disillusioned within the first couple years of getting out of culinary school with the like sort of just toxic work environments of fine dining. And so I quickly um, found a different avenue for myself. And that was first starting a catering business with my wife in 2004 called Saffron Hill. It was the street we lived on in London. Um, and we did boutique modern Indian catering. And that lasted a couple years. And then we both were like, okay, we actually like can't live off this. Um, <laughs> so we both got jobs. Um, but... I went a different route. So I ended up working for Bon Appetit Management Company, which runs a lot of corporate food service and a lot of educational food service. And I became the chef of the De Young Museum and the Legion of Honor. And I was there for like four and wow. a half years. Um, and it was amazing. I loved that job. It was, I mean, it was, I worked ridiculous hours. Um, I never, I had no friends <laughs> except for work friends. <laughs> um, but it was an amazing time. Um, and I think that, you know, from there I ended up at Google and then that's when I was like, I don't want to do this. Um, cause 
for me, corporate food service, like I was cool at the museums because it was, you know, it was still a cafe that's like in the Golden Gate Park, open to the public. Um, we did a, a lot. A, the bulk of my role was really all of the private events, um, whether that was like, you know, Yves Saint Laurent exhibit and Vivian Westwood or somebody's wedding. Um, and that kind of stuff was really fun and I got to be really creative. But ultimately when, when I got, you know, long story short, ended up at Google with the same company, Bon Appetit, um, I was really unhappy because that was just like, I was just like, really like, I'm just making like, you know, the fanciest of cafeteria food, um, for the most entitled humans. So I needed to get out of there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I lasted less than a year. I was just like, I hate this. And I worked Monday through Friday and made more money than I never made in my life. Um, and so then I started a pop-up in a liquor store <laughs> called Jew Beach Club, um, which then became a restaurant in Oakland. So, you know, I mean, for me, I feel like to go back to what I said at the beginning about fine dining, it's like, I, I, that's what I was told I was supposed to do because that's what school indoctrinates you and tells you is the path. But the fact of the matter is that's not why I went to school to begin with. I went to school because I liked cooking. It came naturally to me. And I love the way that it brought like people together. And I wanted to do that and make people happy because when I cooked, people really enjoyed it and it made them happy. And I want to do more of that. So I think that at every stage in my career, whether it was, you know, realizing fine dining wasn't for me or after I did really badly on Top Chef, um, <laughs> these certain moments where I'm like, okay, what what's next? Like, where do I go from here? It's always really important to just remember why. I took this career path to begin with and refocus my energies on that and not all of these external things that people put on you or have expectations of you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, a an apt point. And, and I think the irony, right, that exists be- between the, that kind of training or that kind of value system and then the reality in a fine dining restaurant in, in many cases, every, you know, a lot of people get into food because they, they appreciate that community, that warmth. Uh, they like feeding other people and that's what leads them to culinary school and to yeah. pursue it as a career. And then you wind up in a fine dining restaurant where nobody is happy. There is no warmth and everybody hates everything about it, uh, including the chef in many cases. There's a, it's a, it's, and it's, know, it's yeah, almost a, a disdain for the customer. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I want to love my customers. I don't want to like be like, oh, these fucking people. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and, and uh, yeah, let's talk about Jew Beach Club for a little bit. What was it like to run yeah. the restaurant? Uh, just sort of tell us that story. Wow. Um, you know, it's such a journey. I mean, we closed the restaurant. It's been three years now. And, I mean, I think it's taken me the last three years to just kind of figure out who I am without that restaurant. Um, it was became so much of just my entire identity. Um, and I was talking to someone recently about, like the sort of magic that it was. And I feel like it's one of those things that's like, I'm taking a a much higher level approach to this question. (laughs) FYI, Um, I'm not going to give you little details about sliders and masala fries, but they were great. Um, No, no, I know the high level. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for a long time, I sort of, I missed it and was like, you know, oh, I want to open. I mean, the idea when we closed was not to never open another restaurant. 
um, the idea was that it was a hamster wheel, right? It was just 40 seats. We were very busy. We were pretty much maxed out every night, um, especially weekends. And But, you know, on 40 seats, there's only so much you can make revenue-wise. And it's Oakland. It's not New York. So your service time pretty much is over at 10 p.m. And so it becomes a hamster wheel. And in my head, it was like, you look around and you're like, okay, we could do 50%. This is all math, basically. We could do 50% more customers without 50% more staff. So we need a bigger space. And I talked to a lot of other chefs where they were like, yeah, you know, the sweet spot is more like in that 60 to 80 range. Um, and I'm like, exactly. Like if we, we could do 60, 75 people and I would only have to hire like one or two more people. Um, and so the idea was that I was going to open another Juhu that was going to be bigger, um, probably a little fancier because perception goes a long way. Um, and, you know, there were things I wanted to do. I wanted to like do more large format uh, main entrees. I wanted to do uh, a, a like full dessert program, um, pastry program. And so we just had uh, we had soft serve that we had a bunch of house made like Indian inspired toppings like just passion fruit and, you know, chai spice, candied pecans and stuff like that. Um, so I wanted to like really do some awesome like plated desserts. But what I realized is that like the time of Juhu is sort of like to me, I, I, I sort of liken it to like high school or college. It's like it was what it was and that's what it was in that time period and it'll never be the same. So yeah. – just look back fondly at the magic that it was and the beauty that it was, the people that it brought together, the community that was built. And you'll still have all of that, but trying to recreate that it's, you know, it's 2021. I mean, look at everything we've been through just in the last year. Um, you know, uh, the first three years of the restaurant were pre Trump. Um, all of our mindsets were different. It was also the very beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013 was when um, the hashtag was created by Alicia, Opal, and Patrice. And so that was a different time. And so to me, it's like the people and the moment and the space, I just want to be like, okay, that was this amazing thing and it was awesome, but there's no there, – it's futile to think that you could recreate that same kind of feeling because it just was what it is and you have to just look back and go, oh, my college years, those were amazing. They were so fun and move on. Yeah, I, I think so many people have have that have had that kind of experience in their professional life, right? Something that was all consuming, that was defining, at least while it while it was ongoing. Uh, and that that's complicated that you look back on with with a lot of excitement and regret. And um, how do you for yourself kind of fold that experience into new projects or new ideas or um, a, as you're deciding what to do next, how do you consider that experience in the decision? Well, I think it's, it's, it's gotta be like a confidence of like you created something beautiful and you can do that again. Um, and it's all about evolution. And, you know, I mean, I think that as opposed to looking, you know, there was a lot of things that were really frustrating about running that business too, that were dragging me down. Like, you know, near the end of us closing it, like my wife was like worried I was going to end up in the emergency room because I was just like working too much. 
um, that, you know, I mean, she actually said to me, you may be, you might be superhuman, but you're not a machine. Um, and you know, I think that once I got distance from all of that, I just, am like, okay, that was a, you know, now we can like, you know, toast to each other and say, we created something awesome and beautiful. And it was, it was really something. Um, but then just be like, okay, well, what else is there to create? Like, I want to do more stuff. Like one of the things I used to joke about, although I reminded that musicians have concerts and they are always asked to play their greatest hits, but like, I'm like, why is it that like, I have to keep running the same place every day? Like, you know, musicians drop an album and then they make another album and it might be a total departure from what they did before or not. It might be a continuation. Um, like, I just think like, I'm still me and I'm going to keep creating things. And, and those, the things that were the beautiful things from that time period, I think are, you know, themes that continue were part of my life before. I mean, I was joke, like, you know, I look at my life growing up and in my early years in my twenties and thirties and then opening Juhu and the continuation of that was like, like one thing I think about is like the rainbow coalition, you know, (laughs) it's like I go to certain restaurants and I'm like, you know, I go to Sarah Kernan's restaurants, like this all black staff and that's beautiful. And, um, it's a wonderful thing. Or I go to a friend, uh, who has a Mexican restaurant and the whole staff is pretty much all Mexican. Also a beautiful thing. One thing that has always been true for me is like my friend circle, my community has always just been like so many different types of people. And I think that was really reflective at the staff at Juhu. It was never like all Indian. Um, it was like just this total mix, which is also Oakland, you know, I mean, Oakland is like, pretty much 25% black, Latinx, Asian, white, which is pretty rare for a city. Um, So, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of that kind of like intersectionality is now the word that we have for it. I guess I was using the like 90s word because I'm old. Um, (laughs) Rainbow Coalition. I mean, it's Pride Month. We can, you know, throw, throw in a few extra rainbows. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I sure. think that the intersectionality of that is who I've always been and I'll, I'll always will be. So that just goes forward into anything else that I do. I mean, right now I'm up here, you know, I mentioned farm to pantry, you know, the largest population that we're serving are Latinx because that is the largest population of pe- folks that are food insecure up here. Um, but I'm also like reaching out, like I've been chatting with some folks that are started an Afro indigenous, uh, farm collective up here. And I'm talking about doing some things with them. Um, I mean, I feel like whatever I create, I I think it's, I mean, that's uh, essentially like what all of us have to realize. You have to just let go of that like uniform and shed that skin And it sort of like reminds you like, okay, who am I really? And what was created there was created because of those things. So now in this different reality, what does that mean? Well, those core values of who I am are still the same. So how do I put those same things to work to create more beautiful things? Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. And I I love the sort of image of, of successive projects or restaurants as albums as as individual works of art that sort of stand on their own in the time that they existed and then Mm -hmm. then it's time to come up with something new yeah yeah let's take a quick break we will be right back stay with us 
This episode is brought to you by Sombra, an award-winning artisanal mezcal handcrafted in Santiago, Matatlan, Oaxaca, Mexico. Sombra owns and operates their own distillery, which ensures consistent quality, supply, and environmentally friendly production methods. Sombra is committed to sustainability, recycling distillation waste into adobe bricks to build homes for those in need. Learn more at sombramezcal.com. That's S-O-M-B-R-A mezcal.com. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. My guest this week is Prithi Mystery, who is a chef, author, and activist around all kinds of uh, food and social justice issues. Um, let's let's talk about Twitter uh, and okay. and kind of uh, <laughs> and kind of uh, kind of your voice on Twitter and and I don't know. Can I say the role that you play in the larger food conversation? Uh, because because you really you 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 occupy a space in that conversation that that is. Uh, in a way that I haven't seen a lot of other people do. Uh, yeah. Where, talk, talk, talk a little bit about that. Describe that for me. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing is when I left Bon Appetit Management Company and started my own thing, which was Juhu Beach Club. And at that time, it was a pop-up and a liquor store. All of a sudden, I realized that I don't work for some large corporation and I can say whatever the fuck I want. And it's only on me. Um, so I don't have to answer to anybody else. And that felt really freeing. And so for me, I feel like I have never gotten anywhere in my career by trying to uphold the status quo or get the establishment to give me a seat at the table because I'm somehow appealing to them. Yeah. The way that I've always gotten forward momentum is by being the squeaky wheel. And the fact of the matter is that when you're someone who has an identity like mine that checks a lot of boxes, no one is out there being that isn't of that identity is like, hmm, maybe we should, we need to do more for queer, brown, gender nonconforming folks in the industry who cook, you know, Indian food (laughs) (laughs) or whatever, non-European food, period, Um, and not fine dining, like all of those things. I mean, it's just like I've never – so for me, I feel like what's always been the thing that's propelled me forward is just speaking the truth. And so for me, I don't – like there's a lot of people in this industry that still – really care what, you know, whatever Thomas Keller thinks of them or Daniel Balud thinks of them or what Andrew Zimmern thinks of them. I don't give a fuck because those guys are never going to help me. Like it doesn't matter what I do or what I, what sort of like fine dining, apolitical sausage I squeeze myself into. I'm still just like, you know, seeking approval of this like establishment that's going to be like, "Mm, okay, maybe today, but not tomorrow. I don't need that. So for me, it's like, I feel like I, I get a lot more done for myself and for other people by just being honest. Yeah. Uh, Saying you- things no one else will say, but I know a lot of people think them. And <laughs> yeah. Would you, would you uh, give me an example or two uh, of a conversation like that for anybody who, who hasn't followed you on Twitter or, or may not uh, have seen yeah. your details? 
I mean, here's one really interesting one. So someone who like in a lot of ways, um, when I first joined Twitter, which was probably like, I don't even know, like 2008 or nine, um, that I was like, oh, snap was uh, Richie Nakano uh, at Line Cook. Um, and he had Hopper Ramen that, at that time, which was a pop-up um, as well as was at the Ferry Building. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, he just says whatever <laughs> and like wiles out. And, um, and I was like, wow, right on. I appreciated that breath of fresh air of just being like, hey, let's just be honest. Let's be real. Um, and the funny thing is <laughs> more recently, um, we were having this conversation on Twitter where basically he said that he now, uh, works for chef's feed and, um, he, I, I wouldn't say almost got fired, but basically he had liked and retweeted one of my tweets, criticizing Thomas Keller, calling him out by name and his boss called him. <laughs> <laughs> and basically was like, you need to not, you need to delete that and you need to unlike it. Like Thomas Keller's oh. partners are going through my tweets, looking at who's liking them and then Crazy. going after those people. Why, why do they, so I guess, I, I mean, I, the, the first question is why do they care so much? But I guess the, right. the bigger question is how, how how did you make them care so much? Like, how did you uh, create that kind of power for yourself in the conversation that they were going through your tweets and looking at who liked them? I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, love it. I just, just did. I just say what I think is the truth, and like what I see is plain as day. Like the emperor has no clothes, y'all. Like, why are you all like pretending? Um, and, and, you know, maybe I have a different perspective than a lot of people. Maybe, you know, I, I see things and see through certain people. I see the fake, um, I connect the dots, uh, in a way that other people don't as quickly, um, or they do, but they're not going to say anything because they're not going to risk their position in the, you know, the food world in their career. Um, you know, I think... Those folks are also really, really uh, thin-skinned. I mean, they're not that different than our former president. Um, and I'm not talking about, I mean, whatever, their politics aside. I'm just talking about, like, one thing that I've observed in every facet of our society is that the more power you have, the more thin-skinned you are the more power, money, you know, maleness, whiteness go in hand in hand with that power and money. The more you live in an echo chamber where nobody tells you that you're off base, everyone just tells you what you want to hear. And so when somebody who just actually just like zeroes in and is like, boop, <laughs> actually. <laughs> It's, I think it's really jarring to those folks because they're they're used to being surrounded. I mean, they're all very famous. They're all very rich. Um, they're surrounded by pe yes people. Um, yeah. and, and then and then I guess to see it then uh, to see people appreciate it, see people stand up and say yes, we agree with you, is uh, is just insult to injury. Right. So I think that it it really bothers them because they're they're not used to being criticized all the time.
you know, I mean, I'm fucking criticized. Just like my, my identity is like being legislated, you know, um, like these folks are not used to being criticized. And so it really bothers them. It's like, I, you know, I was on this panel with, uh, a bunch of women chefs that like, it was like at some corporate thing, they paid me whatever, uh, with like women chefs. And, um, we're going down the line and like every woman in telling their story is like, and then I, I knew I needed to grow a thick skin. And it was like one after the other. And I'm just like, I just interrupted in the middle because I'm that asshole. And I'm like, do you guys realize what's going on here? Like pretty much, can you, can you name any powerful, successful woman that doesn't have a thick skin? I'll wait. You know what I mean? And yet the more powerful and successful, financially successful, a man becomes, it's like their skin gets thinner and thinner. They can do no wrong. Nobody can tell them anything. Uh, I find it really interesting. And I really think that's why this stuff bothers these folks so much because they're used to like literally like their customers, their employees, the media, like everyone just kissing their ass and telling them that they are God. And then uh, they don't love it when somebody comes along and, and points out what's actually going on. And here's the thing. They know I'm right. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually had a very prominent journalist from the New York Times on a phone call tell me that everyone knows not to respond to you on Twitter. And I was like, why? <laughs> like everyone, I'm like, whoever that is. Um, and I was like, why? And she's like, because they know you're right. You're generally right. And you make a good point. And so they know they're not going to, I mean, or, you know, as the late great Jonathan Gold said it in a, a tweet that I have a uh, screenshot and I eventually will make mugs and t-shirts and hats. Um, he said something to somebody else. Like, I think you're trying to pick a sh fight with Chef Pumistry and I wouldn't do that. You will not win. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to pick fights to hurt hurt people. I'm just pointing out the truth. So, what advice would you give to somebody else who who has a truth to tell, who uh, has a perspective that that they want to share that isn't part of the conversation? Uh, how how do you how does how does that person get their voice heard or or, or uh, become a bigger part of the conversation? I think it's tricky because, you know, I've also had the privilege of sort of rising up in terms of my platform and fame and networks in a way where, you know, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of business that I do lose. Um, I mean, some people have even said it to my face, um, like literally like, oh, you know, your background check went up the chain and it's not going to work for us. Um from large corporations, um, for like consulting work and stuff like that. But like, I, so I do recognize that I have a privilege in the position that I have. And therefore there are certain things that I can say that maybe other people can't because, you know, rent is real and they need to get work and they don't want that to get in the way. That being said, again, I really believe strongly in not kissing those people's ass and just doing you and like getting somewhere with the good people and recognizing who is, you know, pretending to be good. Um, I have very 
strong like values in terms of who I will and will not work for. And then I also am like, there's certain, you know, like I just mentioned some corporations where it's like, I can vet them to whatever extent. And then guess what? I also need to make money. So (laughs) I might, you know, so I get it. I get it that people have to make those choices, but I, I do think that people should really recognize that they're, they have more power than they realize. And if more people were honest with themselves, I think it starts with, and then being honest with other people and public about the realities that they're facing. Um, I think that, or, you know, other bad actors, as we continue to see, they continue to come out one after the other, after the other, um, that we're all like striving for a better world, right? So you can go back to that sort of like, at the end of the day, there's this quote that I uh, attribute to the internet because I've never been able to figure out who said it, but it's something to the effect of like, if you always wondered what you would have done during the Holocaust or during the civil rights movement, you're doing it right now. So when I think about that, I just think it doesn't, there's a point where, oh, how is this going to hurt my career or my life? And yes, rent is real. There's also a point where it's like other people fought for shit and died. And, you know, I'm not necessarily putting myself out in the street to get hit by a rubber bullet, but I'm going to speak the truth because things have to change. And I think that that's important that we all stop and go, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Like this is this is your moment. Like do do the right thing. S- speak truth to power. You know, it it might not make you rich, but <laughs> at least you'll feel like <laughs> you're you'll a have good some fun doing it. Yeah, and, and and you'll meet the right people. And and you know what? Those networks and those bonds are so much stronger because again, like I said, I could kiss all the ass of the establishment and then one day they could decide, meh, you're not the in thing anymore because they don't really care. They don't really care about you. They just care about money and power. So when you're useful, fantastic. When you're not, they don't know you. Like that's how power works. So I'd rather be focused on changing the whole power dynamic. Um, than trying to, you know, figure out how I can have a seat at the table and then be like, oh, thank you so much for having me here. Like, no, we're building our own table and we're going to be just fine. Yeah. Uh, On that note, let's do a (laughs) couple of uh, (laughs) fun rapid fire questions. Was that like too angry? No, no, no. Do your thing. That's what what we're here for. Uh, But we'll we'll do some fun questions and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, uh, let's do the vegetable question. I warned you ahead of time. You have a great answer ready to go. So I'm just going to ask you, uh, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Dun, dun, dun. Um, I would be a green zebra tomato. I have said this before. Um, they are a little hard on the outside, but they are perfectly ripe and sweet. Also, um, my wife's favorite vegetable are tomatoes. So how could I pick anything other than a tomato? Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, do you have a, is there like a dish or a preparation that you use the green zebras in? You know, I, there's one that I've always wanted to do that I still have not 
but it and it is trying to uh fill the green zebra with like goat cheese and deep fry the whole thing like a fried green tomato but in like because the green zebras tend to be smaller uh sort of golf ball size sometimes they're a little bit bigger um but they tend to be in the small to medium size range not like your gigantic uh you know cherokee uh beefsteak type um so yeah this idea of like kind of hollowing them out yeah they seem like the perfect size to kind of like scoop out and fill i think i've done it uh i think i've filled them with like an herbed cheese as an hors d'oeuvre but not then deep fried that's that's the part that's the next <laughs> the finishing part. touch yeah. well because i want to do this like fried green tomato kind of thing but like yeah yeah you know, it's, it sounds awesome. I'll, uh, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Okay. Um, desert Island kitchen tools. What do you bring with you to your desert island uh, where you're either marooned or vacationing, whichever one you prefer? Mm, microplane zester. Uh, my favorite knife is not an expensive knife. I have many expensive knives, <laughs> but the knife I use the most is a like $24.99 offset serrated knife it's my favorite knife for like pretty much all veg prep is there a, a brand or what uh, like your basic one? like your basic like victrinox or whatever like i don't know even just like your restaurant depot brand um yeah. because they're 24.99 and so you use them forever and then when they're dull you just toss them and get a new one yeah. Yeah. And I think serrated knives get uh, way undervalued, especially when it comes to vegetables. Yeah. And then the offset makes it so that you have the right uh, angle as opposed to like a regular bread knife. Um, you know, I, you- I love this. <laughs> so specific. Every, you know, usually like we ask this question a lot. People always say chef's knife, whatever, but you're uh-huh. the only person to describe exactly which knife, how much it costs and what shape you want the handle to be. I, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm trying to think of what the last, the third one is. Um, maybe my uh, my Bellin, which is uh, it's like an Indian rolling pin. So it's like it's like skinny and long and tapered at the ends. B e l a n. You can look it up. What do you What do you use it for? I mean, you make all kinds of uh, flatbreads. So uh, every kind of like barata, rotli, tepla, rotla, puri, uh, the skins for samosas, you name it. Nice. Um, all right. Last question. How about a, a, a great meal that you've had that costs less than five or ten bucks? Oh, well, I, I have a new favorite taco place up here in Sonoma County. And it's called Galvin's, G-A-L-V-A-N, Galvin's Eatery. He has a trailer, um, and he's making some amazing quesabiria and crispy queso shrimp tacos. Um, And yeah, I'm in love with it. My friend, uh, chef friend that I made out here, uh, Leah Skirto, she has a place called Pizza Leah. Um, She opened during the pandemic, and has become like one of the top pizza places in the Bay area. Um, got like best new restaurant in the middle of a pandemic last year in Sonoma County. Um, and this, uh, young man, Omar, uh, used to work for her years ago. And, uh, and Leah's also half Mexican. So I've been harassing her like, where's the best tacos? Um, 
And, and now you found um, them. And, and then I found them, yes. Um, and he's at the corner of 116 and Stony Point Road um, <laughs> on the weekdays. And then he's at a, lo- a bunch of microbreweries because there's, you know, a lot of microbreweries in Sonoma County on the, yeah. on the evenings and weekends. Awesome. Well, Priti, thank you so much for joining me this week. Where can our listeners uh, find you, follow you on social media, listen to your podcast, uh, pick up po- a copy of your cookbook? Anything else? Oh, so many things. Um, They can find me at Chef P Mystery, both on Twitter and Instagram. The podcast is called Loading Doc Talks, and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. My book, The Juhu Beach Club Cookbook, is sold where most cookbooks are sold. Or you could also get it in a bundle with my Spice Walla collaboration. I have masalas, uh, so you can get the three masalas and the book. Awesome. Um, thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. Thank you to our amazing stand-in sound engineer, Liam. Uh, as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can reach Valerie on Instagram, at Foodie in New York. And most of all, Priti, thank you so much for joining me and, and for such a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Ethan. It's so nice to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.